The Napa Know How Motorsport Academy is back, bigger than ever. The Academy offers tuition to all racers aged 13 and up, giving insights into the world of racecraft and analysis, plus information on health, sponsorship and media. On top of the information you'll receive, you can win regular prizes and best of all, it's free to join. Get involved at the new Napa Motorsport Asia Pacific Facebook and Instagram pages or visit the Napa Australia or New Zealand websites to sign up and be part of know-how that is synonymous with Napa. Start your engines. This is the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racer Podcast. Well, a very good day to you. Thank you for joining us on the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Podcast here for episode 17 and we can't believe it either 17 dick johnson's number what a great number to end up on early in 2023 we hope you've enjoyed the preceding 16 uh, episodes and it was fantastic to catch up with uh, multiple australian rally champion simon evans on our last episode hope you've caught up on that one if you haven't plenty of opportunity to jump on all of your normal podcast opportunities and catch up with everything going on in the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Podcast. I'm Darren Smith, and uh, just sneezing his way through the start of the uh, show is my co-host. He can't wait for Australia Day. He loves to put a bit of lamb on the barbie, washes it down with a bit of uh, Victoria's Finest, and that is all the introduction you're going to get tonight, Gaz. A lamb on the barbie, on the boat, on the harbour, I believe, a 45-footer, enjoying Australia Day in a couple of days' time. Welcome, Gaz. Well, thanks, Daz. No, it actually won't be on the harbour. It'll be in Botany Bay somewhere, I think. But at this stage, well, I believe you already had your holiday, so you're going to be uh, shoulder to the grindstone and back to work. Absolutely will be, yes. Um, back to work and uh, getting things done. So, uh, yeah, I can't say looking forward to it, Gaz, but we're <laughs> dump, jumping into the uh, the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Podcast with uh, great energy for 2023 of course plenty to catch up on we've got a fantastic guest joining us here uh today as well anything you've been up up to gaz over the last couple of weeks motorsport wise or has it just been head down tinnies up and uh enjoying yourself well no i've been pretty quiet on the beers as well got to look after my health a little bit <laughs> the um australia's been pretty well devoid of any racing it's all been happening in, in new zealand last couple of weekends, which we're going to go into later in the program, particularly talk about the Aussies and Justin Allen, who um, a lot of people here won't know, but he does race with uh, Napa Auto Parts signage on his car. So we keep a good eye on him because he's part of the family. Great that the focus has shifted in Australia to all of the releases around the 12 hour as well. So that's coming up and I dare say that'll be your next uh, road trip. Over to the mountain, of course, the Napa Auto Parts Grassroots Racing Academy is a big focus of what we do here at the uh, at the podcast. You can check it all out at the Napa Know How Academy, www.napaparts.com.au forward slash academy. And uh, similar for our friends over the ditch in New Zealand and uh, all the academy free services aimed at improving the members racing plenty on fitness, diet, even media different bits and pieces that you can um, catch up with there as well. And of course, our fantastic friends at Race Fuels, they'll be at the 12 hour. Yes, most certainly. Um, we're looking forward to it. Great support cast there as well. 30 odd cars racing in the 12 hour, which starts at uh, in the dark on the Sunday morning. 
happening. And of course, backed up by Formula Ford Kent series and the combined sedans, uh, which is a combination of base frame cars, chassis cars of uh, improved production sports sedans and production cars. And there's a few sneaky people getting in some practice for the six hour coming up on Easter Sunday. And of course, we have V8 touring cars there as well. Let's hear from our friends at Race Fuels. Race Fuels is Australia's leading supplier of racing fuel to national and state level motorsport. And its range of racing fuels includes the BP Supercars E85, which is available to grassroots races. For power and protection over pump fuel, Race Fuels imports the Elf Race 102, as used by Porsche Carrera Cup and the Touring Car Masters. More info on Race Fuels E85 and Elf Race 102 is available at racefuel.com.au. Thanks very much for our mates at Race Fuels, and we hope they have a fantastic Bathurst 12-hour. Gaz, our guest is pretty keen to get on. He's uh, hanging on the sides here. Let's uh, let's get our first guest, well, a second guest for 2023 on. Our guest today is a man who is a motoring expert, a performance driving coach, a media personality, and a motivational speaker. He also knows how to win both on and off the racetrack. He's an Australian motor racing champion, and during his long career, has participated in countless events from the Bathurst 1000 to the London to Mexico Rally and just about everything in between. How did racing uh, an early Holden on the dirt way back when progress through to rubbing shoulders with politicians? Well, let's have Ian Luff tell us his story. Thanks, Gaz. Pleasure to be on board. Let's go back to the very start and... um, what got you putting wheels on dirt as it was? And um, let's start there and just progress to uh, how it all unfolded. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a pretty unlikely story. Young bloke down in Melbourne, going to Murrawbark Tech, uh, live next door to a golf course. And every night after school, rather than hitting the books, I get the clubs out and fancy myself as a bit of a, um, a, a golfer. Anyway, um I had a professional caddy job on the Saturday and uh, I love golf. I just my whole life. Anyway, uh, cut a long story short, this day, the professional up there, I had a good round of golf and he said, uh, young Luffy, he said, uh, you've, you've done really well. He said, how do you like to be a pro golfer? I'll give you a job. Now, back then in the sixties, I mean, you know, you had to do a trade of something. So I ran home to my dad who had been through the war um, and the depression. I said, dad, dad, I've got a job. And he said, what's that son? I said, I'm going to be a professional golfer. And he's gone, bullshit. No son of mine's going to chase a stupid white ball around and get a real job. So the choice he had back then was carpentry, plumbing, and a thing called fitting and turning. And I wasn't sure about the last one. It sounded like something happening on a bad party night. So I'd made a chopping board at school and I got splinters. So I thought carpentry's out. And I thought being a plumber, I'm not going to pick up other people's shit. So I thought we'd have a look at this fitting and turning. And um, as it turned out, uh, a job came up with uh, Repco Power at Bayswater in Victoria where they made all the engine reconditioning machines and they were looking for first-year apprentices. So my mum took me down for an interview and somehow I must have um, convinced them that um, I could do something. So they put me through a cadetship, which was pretty special at that time, through the Repco uh, Training Centre. They brought you up to third-year standard in 12 months and that was 1966, the year in which Sir Jack Brabham won the world championship in his Repco Brabham car for the third time. 
And if I look at it, it was really uh, Sir Jack Brabham, as he's known now, or the late Sir Jack Brabham, who really got me involved in motorsport at an early stage in Victoria. Well, that's uh, name dropping right from the top there, Luffy. That's uh, brilliant that you've got that one in there. It's uh, going to slide downhill from there, I'm sure. Yeah, well, look, um, you know, from that moment there, I I, I decided to um, join the Phillip Island Auto Racing Club and I had bought myself this um, Datsun Bluebird. It was a triple S model, the same as uh, a bloke called Doug Whiteford from the Castrol Racing Team. He raced one, so I thought they were a good car. And I joined the Phillip Island Auto Racing Club. My first event was a, a motor car where you skid around car parks and, and that was that was uh, basically 1970 and I actually won my class. So it was the first trophy I ever got. And I, I like the, the shiny bronze look of this um, medallion. And that's what got me uh, hooked on motorsport. So is that uh, the Stamford hotel car park motorcana? It was 100% the Stamford car park. And there was a bloke, a, a bloke called Noel Devine in an XU1 Tirana champion pest control. And I even beat him. And I thought, gee, was this, um, this, skidding around and handbrake turns and all that was for me. So, but yeah, I was hook, hook, line and sinker. So it all basically started from there. So continuing on from that point, was that where you thought you might just stay or did circuit racing come? When did that sort of jump onto the horizon? Well, I was coming towards the end of my apprenticeship at that time uh, with Repco and I got offered a position um, to go to Gove, which is up in uh, Arnhem Land in a place called Nullanby, and they're building the town. This is yeah, 1970. So uh, another mate and I, we decided to pack our tools and go up there. And uh, um, I think good things go bad, bad things go good sometimes. It was pretty amazing, but I had a motorbike accident up there, got shipped home. And when I was in rehab, my brother-in-law, who brought car air conditioning to Australia, which are the old Mark IV under-dash units, those um, classic things, he rang me up and he said, um, hey, Luffy, he said, I, I need uh, some pulley machining done. And he said, you've got the skills being uh, your apprenticeship. And that had to like to come to Sydney. So uh, I packed my EH Holden up. I got rid of the Dado at the time and drove the EH up the Hume Highway and stayed in Sydney and never came back. So um, he he basically got me involved because we were sponsoring at that time Bob Morris um, in the XU1. And... Um, from that moment there, I used to get all the secondhand bits off Bobby Morris's car. I put them into my EH, um, did my first Amaru Park dirt circuit um, against Peter Werrett, who uh, was the founder of what's called advanced driving. Um, I did the course the week before at Warwick Farm, managed to bounce my EH off the arm, come in the wet, enthusiasm, exceeding ability. <laughs> I remember Werrett coming up to me and he looked at the car and he said, uh, what do you do over there? And I said, nothing. And he walked around to the passenger side and it was like a sardine can with a, <laughs> a slot opened up. And he said, that's the biggest lot of nothing I've ever seen. And he said, young Luff, he said, well, I've been watching you. He said, you drive the car hard, but not smart. And he said, let me show you what I mean. So he jumped in the driver's seat and that, changed my life forever he took off around the old warwick farm circuit and he's throwing the car around he said this is you you're like a blacksmith i want you to be like a surgeon and um and that really opened my mind to think well there was two ways to do everything the smart way and the dumb way and i think i'd figured out the dumb way but he got me involved in motor racing i um, then got an xu1 luffy um, just before you jump too far ahead we've got a lot of current pyark members um you touched on right at the top of the chat here. 
Yes. Um, what 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 era did you remain a member of the Phillip Island Auto Racing Club till? Um, I probably was right through 70, 71. I don't think I would have renewed after that because, like I said, in seventy two, I moved to Sydney. But um, it look, it was a fabulous institution. We used to go down to Queens Road, down to the club rooms. And everyone was enthusiastic. It was just a, a fantastic camaraderie of rev heads that all shared a common goal, which was uh, some form of motorsport. Uh, and one thing I learned from that is you could definitely tell the people that liked the open wheelers versus the taxis, which were the things with the tin roof. But uh, everyone did share the same passion. And I think that's what makes motorsport such a unique business to be involved in. Yeah, certainly. So a big shout out to all of those members that uh, listen in. They 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 share our uh, podcast on their Facebook page, etc. So thanks for that. Sorry, I cut you off at your uh, your XE one there. Well, I, no, actually, no. I was going to make a point in there about Peter Werrett, who um, a lot of people probably won't have remembered Peter Werrett these days, but he had a uh, a program on the ABC called uh, Talk. I think was it. Yep, started with Talk. He was the first person to yep. get actively involved in bagging out the manufacturers and suitably did so with the Leyland P76. Um, said why any manufacturer could build a piece of crap like that. Um, <laughs> he was not sanitised, but one thing that where it taught me was he said, Luffy, he said, it's not about teaching people how good a driver you are. You've got to make people the better driver. And he could articulate a message and he did that through television. He got me involved, as I said, um, with his advanced driver training club, of which I was then deputised as a deputy trainer, um, and it got me involved. And and my first, I suppose, big event in my Tirana, which was a pretty trick car with all the ex-Bob Morris bits on it, was an event at Amory Park called the Motathlon, which was an inter-club event. North Shore Sporting Car Club were involved, heap of others, and obviously the Peter Ware Advanced Driver Training Club, and we had four entries. Uh, all Taranas because they were the car at the moment and um, went to Amu Park. He did the main circuit, he did the hill climb, the dirt circuit and a motor carner. And uh, I can always remember turning up there because there's a bloke that I've got to know very well called Jim Hunter. A lot of people would know he's raced Bathurst and um, very heavily involved in suspension through Jim Hunter suspension work. And Jim turned up with a Norman G booth, a Holden dealer from Sydney XU1. He had winter tread rally tyres. He had everything and he even jacked the car up and had the thing changing gears i didn't know at the time but he had a detroit locker diff and he was trying to warm up the oil to make it right and there are all these things that you learn as you go along and i'm competing but overall i ended up finishing fourth outright out of all the disciplines of um uh, with just um a set of slicks and a set of street tires but uh that that then really got the bug and uh, and then i defected from holden to ford and whatever reason I saw it advertised in Racing Car News, there was the uh, ex-Ralph McIntyre uh, 105A Anglia, which is, for those that want to know, it's like a Harry Potter car. <laughs> and, and it had a 221 yeah. cubic inch Falcon motor, triple SUs, um, full lock diff. Uh, it was just a piece of crap. It even had a, a four-speed Riley gearbox in it. And I bought that car and I was just, um, this was going to be a world beater. And I can remember the first time I drove it at Oran Park, it was out of control. But and when I look back now, it was probably me out of control, not the car. <laughs> but that was the car that um, I shipped across to Perth. I got a, a job transfer, again, in car air conditioning, and we went to Perth, my wife and I. And I had my first race at Wanneroo Park. And what was interesting over there, Perth back then in 74 was a township. 
And I turned up in the pits out there and you've got a bloke called um, Ian Diffin that uh, had a Valiant Charger and Dr. Leo Stubber in a Porsche. We're talking real race cars. And they said, oh, you're the bloke that's towed that um, uh, Anglia across the Nullarbor Plain. And I towed it with a GDR Toronto company car. And they said, yeah, they knew it was in town. But that's how small the town was. But believe it or not, I actually won my first ever race over there in the rain because uh, I took all, all on slicks. It was just a downpour. And uh, cruising around a couple of big slides. And I wondered where everyone was. I thought they've all pulled into the pits. And the checkered flag came down. And I then got the trophy again. So, um it must have been the bug, but that little uh, Anglia was a phenomenal car. We shipped it back. didn't last long in uh, Perth, only six months. Came back to Sydney, got some sponsorship from some car air conditioning dealers that we'd appointed. They threw money at me, which I like because you drive better. And um, we took that to Oran Park and had amazing success. We changed the gearbox from the Riley gearbox to a, out of Bob Jane's Camaro, a big Super T10 box, and re-engineered it, Tirana diff, so it had a bit of holding in it. And a lot of Ford, um, and and yeah, that car sort of uh, running in the Toby Lee series. Um, remember when they used to have crowds of like thirty thousand people at Oran Park, and maybe I perform well in front of a crowd. I think I do because <laughs> I enjoy doing keynote speaking now. But uh, that Angley was fantastic. It really uh, it put me on track, literally, um, to know what it took to actually set a car up mechanically. In other words, to do with brake balance, suspension. I always thought it was about horsepower, but um, as you know yourself, uh, Gary, it's all about getting the grip and not the slip. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, of course, in that Toby Lee era, that would have been in the uh, mid-70s, I would imagine. Yeah, that was, um, we were talking probably around about 1976. I ran the car at Amaru Park uh, again. And the interesting thing about Amaru Park, and uh, tragically it's no longer with us like a lot of circuits, and but uh, at Amaru Park, the... Um, the, the little car was pretty good. Um, and I I was still learning racecraft because a lot of people don't understand it's one thing to drive a race car, but to understand how to outsmart people like a game of chess. And there was a guy up there, this guy called Keo Sundell. He had an E.H. Holden, triple Webers, big horsepower, could beat me up the hill, over bitch a pave at the top. I could catch him. And I remember premeditated he was going out wide at the entrance to uh, Bitcher Pave Loop and I thought there's an opening there there's an opening and on the last lap I thought I'm going to take the opening but I didn't realize it was a closing gap by the time I got there he was closing in tapped him in the back corner forget about the B pillar rule that you have to be passed he spun around I, I put the fist out there which probably wasn't too good because it was on TV and then get called uh, before the stewards at the end of the race. So they disqualified me, which I wasn't happy. And I said, he caused it. He left the opening. I went for the opening. They said, well, you're new here to Amaru Park. Welcome to the ARDC. So I realised then they're a bunch of mongrels and nothing much has changed. <laughs> Careful, Gaz. You do some work for the ARDC. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's all right. Um, yeah, so from that, at this point, you were just racing and working. Um, yep. And that continued, but when I first started meeting you and we in various race cars and what have you, you were already doing some advanced driving. How, so how did that sort of start and how did you balance the two together? Okay, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a very logical question because, yes, things pan out in a certain way. I said where it paved the way uh, for me through the Advanced Driver Training Club, but I um I had a bit of a stint in 1977 in the defunct Renault New Star series. They're all ex uh, Renault rent a cars from K's rent a car and whatever. 
and they had this series around the country and a, a very good friend of mine, the late Russell Norden, uh, he was entered, but uh, he'd had a massive crash in his Formula Ford at Oran Park, tangled wheels. And they, he said, Luffy, the car's there, you can drive it. So um, you, uh, the officials from, and particularly Renault, they made us put a sticker saying Renault across the front of the windscreen. So just to be different, I put mine on upside down uh, so that it could be more recognisable. And the the CAMS officials called me over and said, no, the uh, you can't do that. And I said, where's it in the regulations? The sticker's on there. And they said, well, you're not allowed to. And I said, well, show me where it says it. And anyway, I said, the stupid things are going to end up upside down. So I'm doing the right advertising anyway. <laughs> so I raced that there, raced it at Sandown. But the the marry-up between the, the two, it, it probably, because I was having, you know, my children at that point in time and with work, motor racing took a bit of a sabbatical. And it really wasn't until uh, when you could sit back and say, the, the, the early 80s that um, that where it passed the baton on um, to another person and then a bloke by the name of Peter Finlay who raced Formula Fords, he raced overseas, he then took over the name. Everyone worked for him, Jim Mercott including, and then Jim Mercott branched out, split the atom. And then in the early 80s, I decided to go my own way because the car air conditioning industry was coming to a rapid halt cars were coming with air at that point in time like you look at a car now and you don't say wow it's got wind up windows and yeah it's got a stereo system so I read the road ahead and I thought well this air conditioning business is literally going to evaporate so um, I decided to get into driver training and uh, it, it happened you know with a trip around Australia with Volvo doing the, uh, the Volvo Dynamic Safety Driving Program and uh, I got the bug and I approached different companies like uh, Jaguar Rover Australia who we did air conditioning for for Range Rovers, hosted a day at Castle Ray Dragway, and the rest is history. Got hooked, um, and then all of a sudden started working with major OEM car companies doing days, retail people, and the big one was a lot of people wanting to get into motorsport, uh, wanting their CAMS licenses, as it was referred to then. So um, the the trail of, um, of of people coming aboard through my driving academy, as you know, Gaz, we met at Oran Park, and I I moved there after Castle Ray for a very short period of time, they shut that, then moved to Oran Park in 82 and, and stayed there for 27 years. So uh, until it closed in 2010 um, and was obviously privileged to do the, the last lap alongside my son, Warren. Um, and that was probably a pretty emotional day driving an Alan Moffat uh, phase three um, lookalike Falcon and Warren was in a Mosul sports car and people said, what was your last lap like? I said, it's the last fastest or slowest lap I've ever done compared to going fast. <laughs> so we wanted to make a last lap. We're quicker but than the, that. The, but the owner of Oran Park, which is um, the Perich family, Tony Perich, true to his word, said, you've been good to us, Luffy. He said, I'm going to let you do the last event. And true to his word, he let me. And then he said, I'll put a bulldozer through the track the moment you cross the line. And there he is. He got the old D9 out and put a track and said, no one will ever drive on this track again. You've got the ability to say you've driven the last one. So we wow. did that. I also did the last one at Amaru Park as well. So um, I must have oh, something okay. to do with closing motor racing circuits, I think. <laughs> yeah. We'll keep you away from Bathurst and some of the other places then. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's let's put the uh, the good tick next to Wakefield Park and don't let you do a lap there either. We <laughs> want to get that one back up and running too. Yeah, well, that's a that's a very sad story that uh, you know motor racing in, and and particularly you know I've said for a long time that when people move in Sydney Showgrounds is a good example. I mean, speedway racing was going back there in the 1920s, and 
I can't think of too many people that have moved in in the 20s that still be alive. And you had people move in and complain about noise. I think if you move next to an airport, you know, suck it up, princess, and uh, take it on the chin. Yeah, well, I think you know, I can remember when um, the Tullamarine was first opened and it was on uh, Bill Peach's uh, Today Tonight on the ABC, the official opening and all that, and uh, you couldn't see a house anywhere. Not a building outside the place. And now you look at it. Now they're complaining about planes coming down and going into properties and whatever. They can't win. I tell you what, they're yeah, talking well, about opening Calder again and uh, the uh, the old Keelor Council have let the houses creep right up to the edge of that place. It's going to be interesting when they uh, open the gates there again. I think we're getting off track a little bit here, Luffy. We would uh, love to hear more of, um, you know, you're obviously your driving business and the passion and, um, I remember seeing you on the the Today Show as the the motoring editor there as well, and different bits and pieces around that that you raced. But um, it's certainly been a huge part of your public persona that uh, driver training and awareness and the, the whole anti drink driving side of things. Is it still as passionate to you today as what it was back in the in the early eighties? Yeah, look, very. Very much so. It's, um, you know, back in those days, things were, yeah, pretty agricultural. You know, motorsport was growing up very quickly. And and particularly, um, you know, if, if I look back at, at moments, say, at Oran Park, um, you know, when they invented truck racing. I mean, the Perriches had this brilliant idea, being, you know, the largest dairy farmers in the Southern Hemisphere had trucks. Why don't we run some trucks around the circuit? Because they're doing it in Europe. And everyone got the bug, and uh, and I was very fortunate um, in that in those early nineties. Um, my son Warren, who's obviously a very uh, established racer and is today, um, we got to race against each other. In fact, he was the youngest ever truck racer to to drive uh, a massive Kenworth around there, and they're pretty impressive things. They're like about fifteen hundred horsepower. They can do the quarter mile in about thirteen and a half seconds. And in fact, at one of the uh, big Oran Park truck meetings, I was driving the Inky Tullock left-hand drive GMC. And um, you come onto the straight and you've got your left foot on the brake to build up the boost in the turbo, big auto box, right-hand shift. And they're using a GTR Godzilla uh, pace car. And the bloke in the pace car is trying to hold us back. And when you've got um, two massive trucks on the front row and a whole lot of idiots behind you, including uh, you know, the late Rodney Creek, who's a very good mate, and he worked for me as well. Um, you can't hold these things back, so you take your foot off the brake and these things slingshot. And uh, we're down towards um, the medical centre on the main straight of Oran Park, and we're all of a sudden drawn level with the GDR Godzilla. This poor bloke absolutely died and just took off down to the uh, long circuit. They had a red flag and line us up. And I remember coming up later and he said, he said, Jesus, Luffy, he said, those things accelerate quick. I said, yeah, well, I said, they might weigh five tonnes. they got 1,500 horsepower, and it's all low centre of gravity. So the next time when the race started and he came around, you should have seen him clear out there really quickly. He, <laughs> he gave us a real clean berth. But, um, yeah, look, truck racing was – that was a lot of fun. I raced in the small class, the Isuzus. Um, and, in fact, just a lighter moment, we got invited to go to Swan Hill down on the Murray River to a dirt speedway down there. So um, – you know, Bert Winters, who was really big into the light trucks, they called them. We took um, eight light trucks down to Swan Hill Speedway. And the crowd down there that night, they, they'd obviously promoted truck racing coming to the speedway. So you imagine all the fruiters down there and all the uh, Griffith drug dealers decided to come and stand on the, uh, stand on the, 
edge of the track and cheer us on and maybe smoke a bit of weed. And it was just <laughs> it was just an insane, insane meeting with these Isuzus with black smoke pouring out sideways, clumps of dirt being thrown into the crowd. But um, it, look, it, it was really good. But um, getting back to your question about the business side, uh, I was very privileged, as I said, to be primarily based at Oran Park. And we used to do a lot of corporate driver training for risk management for companies with fleets, and we still do. And uh, and that aligned me very strongly with very big corporate people. And one p- particular person was a guy by the name of Jeff Morgan. And he ran a company, a headhunting company called Morgan and & Banks. And uh, a, um, I was the first person with one of his drive days, he used to invite different people from different walks of life to come along. And uh, I've got my big sports sedan that you're familiar with, Gaz, that we'll touch on. And I invented what's called the hot lap. I think everyone else has taken a how I never registered the name and trademarked it. It's my problem, but um, you'll give yourself have, an uppercut for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, anyway, we at the end of the day, you know, there's a guy called Julian Beaumont, one of the directors from Macquarie Bank, and uh, he was a fairly nervous sort of driver. And he they strapped him in the passenger seat of my 600 horsepower, thousand kilo rocket ship. And, um, and I can remember him, he was, uh, when I'd done two laps and pulled up in pit lane, the guy was just a dribbling mess and, and Morgan sticks his head in the car and he's gone, Julian, how are you feeling? And it was almost like, but air, but air, but air, that's all folks. <laughs> <laughs> the guy had to be lifted out with a spatula and he, it was last seen here off in the toilet block direction. But um, <laughs> that particular car of mine, that sports sedan, uh, it was um, an ex-Bob Tyndall chassis. And Bob built very good cars, and then um, Rodney Crick had it, and his father then decided to sell it, and he sold it to me. And that actually probably turned the corner for me um, with racing because I actually raced the car up at the very first IndyCar meeting on the Gold Coast. And back then, uh, Cam said to anyone, because Bob Jane was involved for some reason, I don't know why they hated Bob Jane, but they said if you if you if you <laughs> race a couple Bob good reasons. Jane, <laughs> yeah, if you race for Bob Jane, you yeah you'll have to forego your cams license. So um, Bob came up with this unique idea of calling the cars not sports sedans. He said they're now overnight rubber stamp with me. They're now Trans Am. So that's how the word Trans Am got built. So I ran um, my sports sedan up there at Rusty French and his big twin turbo Porsche. It was an amazing event. And Bob Jane, being the theatrical guy, he came up to all of us in the pits before. We got to race and he said, listen, you bunch of assholes." He said, let me tell you this. You're putting on a show. And he said, if anyone here races out in front and wants to be a big hero, let me tell you, I'll rip your freaking license up. You'll never, ever race again under any of my tracks, whatever. So we're all stay. It was actually hard to try and stage a race because Rusty French had power and I'm out breaking him and we're nearly bouncing off walls. But it was really amazing. But out of that, I had a, um, there was a guy from Indonesia. I can't remember his name, but um, he had a Mazda, a Dick Ward RX-7 built in Perth. And they were a full space frame, Hewland transaxle, 13B, um, 600 kilos. Um, they went like absolute rocket ships. And this thing's immaculate. And this guy's got more gold bling than I wear. And um, it looked like a QE2 anchor chain around his neck. And I'm thinking, hang on, this opportunity here so i walked up to the guy and said oh look hi i said welcome to australia my name's ian luff and he goes oh my name is Louis or something there or whatever uh and i said where are you from he goes uh, indonesia and i said really good so out of that i get an invite to race against tommy sahato 
all expenses paid at the Central Formula One circuit in Indonesia. <laughs> so that's how my international career kicked off because Ron Misson, who used to do the Kevin Bartlett Channel 9 car, the Bobby Morris, uh, John Fitzpatrick, all that. Ronnie Misson uh, was close by. He used to prepare my sports sedan. And uh, we went to Indonesia together to have a bit of a crack at Tommy Sahato in a Perkins Commodore. Well, we turned up and I remember the media conferences. There were about a thousand Gary O'Brien sitting there <laughs> with pen and paper. And they're gonna they're they're carrying on like Tommy Sahato is gold plated, like but Tommy, Tommy Champion, he's champion have uh, Perkins car. You cannot beat him. And I said, <laughs> Well, time will tell. And I made the fatal mistake of um of, of, of outqualifying. <laughs> well, I outqualified him and put it on pole. And over the over the night, Sahato withdrew the entry. Um Ooh. Some mechanical repairs needed, or some crap. But um, I went on and actually won. And uh, and so, how did the Indonesian media repay me? They broke into my room and stole the trophy, my passport, and and a and a tag hoy, a watch that I bought from the Sunwarren. And I'm stuck in Indonesia without a passport. Let me tell you, great international <laughs> racing experience. I think that same driver Ian also went through about six Perkins engines in a Formula Holden as well. One year they. And at the end of the, they, they, you know, when the Formula Holdens went over there and at the end of the weekend, they, they had no more Formula Holden engines that they'd stolen from Varana and from Gibson and all that. So the, they just rolled out an F4, F3000, full spec F3000, ran it from the back of the grid and he didn't make turn one. I'm pretty sure it's the same guy that ran that Dick Ward sports yeah. sedan. Well, the racing in Indonesia is amazing because in the pits, I mean, they, they, they can't say Luffy, they can't, they say Ruffy. And, um, and when I'm out there, Ronnie Misson had the car all tuned in. It's dry, stinking hot, sweating like anything. And they have torrential rain every now and then. So I'm going around the circuit. And um, we only had one set of wets with us. We, we took them anyway. We thought we won't need them. The rain started pouring down. And as I went down past the main straight, there's a fully armour-plated presidential box for President Sahato. Um, and I've gone past and done a full 360 at over 300 k's and kept going. And the, these people come running up in the pits later and they're going, oh, Ruffy, champion driver, you're a champion driver. And I'm thinking, bullshit, it was the biggest <laughs> biggest fluke of all time. How it came around facing the right way and kept going. Um, but they're just, look, they're just some of the moments. But uh, when we when we came back from there, Ron, Ron Goodman, um, who's become a really, really good mate, like he painted the car, um, made it look fast because we always said if you've got a good-looking car, and he was big on preparation, which he still is today, with his little 956 Porsches. And um, he, um, we were down at Bob Jane's um, Thunderdome, and I was driving an Oscar. And uh, it was really interesting because uh, he said to me, uh, this is Goodman, he said, uh, how'd you like to have a steer of the of the NASCAR? And I said, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. And he and we had Steady Eddie, the comedian out there, and it was a, th it was a thing for a television <laughs> documentary yeah. and as you know there's no opening doors on the car and and steady eddie's got a few disabilities and he knows how to put on a good show and they're trying to feed him through the side window and his legs are going up over the a pillar and he's like he's carrying on he's like, no i can't fit i can't fit anyway they've, they've got him in the car and um taking him for a blast around the circuit and it, it, he was the funniest bloke I, I think it's one of the moments in motorsports it's crazy things it wasn't a race it was just a pure hot lap of the bob jane thunderdome which is that's another level of nascar racing even oscar racing is totally insane it's um the speeds you're doing you've got no time to blink whereas in circuit racing you, you do have little gaps particularly at places like bathurst
Actually, um, I went to one of the Thunderdome meetings. It was the Christmas 400, the one that Terry Labonte won when he came out here. But on that same program, they had trucks. The trucks had a race there. Yep. And, um, of course, you know, they're governed to 160 kilometres an hour, 100 mile an hour, whatever. The lap average was a 103 or something, 103 mile an hour. They they must have took the governors out for, for that session. And I think Billy Cedars crashed into a wall. And um, that was when there eight. was waves in the oil on the back straight of the Thunderdome that came out of that. I remember that one. And Formula V's well. yes. race yeah, there as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah they... that that Cedar's truck that split the sump and uh, Calder was 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 either was either hot or cold, but it was always windy. Yeah, and uh, the oil going across the track had waves in it. I remember <laughs> watching over the fence because the Oz cars were coming out next to going. They've got to get rid of all that oil. How are they going to do it? Yeah, getting back to the sports sedan that opened doors for me, the um when they had the very first Bathurst twelve hour, I got an invitation from an agency uh, in Melbourne representing the late Peter Brock. And they're putting a team together of drivers uh, for the Peugeot Emily 16 team headed by Peter Brock. Anyway, for some reason, I get a call and they said, we'd like you to come and have a meeting with us. And um, and obviously Brock being the, the master supremo, he'd seen me drive a sports sedan. As you know, his career started off in the Austin A30, um, which kicked him along. And he always said, anyone that can drive a a big horsepower car that's under-tired with 10-inch rims and, you know, managed to break the 10-year lap record at Oran Park, which I managed to do. Um, he said, I'd like um, young Ian Luff to be on my list of potential drivers. So we sat down, the rest is history, got to drive with Brock's team at Bathurst. And and out of that, which is, is quite amazing, Brock was the supreme master because what happened with those cars, they were chewing up uh, brake rotors at a rapid rate because the pads from Talbot Motorsport were the wrong choice, way too hard. So Brock called us in and said, we have a problem, drivers. And, you know, people like Peter McKay, the legendary motoring journalist, good mate, he was there. We were looking at each other. He said, what we've got to do, we've got to brake less. We've got lots of Bridgestone tyres. And he said, when you come to Skyline, he said, don't brake, give the car a bit of a scando, flick it sideways, scrub the, the bridges out, the crowd will love it and we'll survive because he said... If we run out of rotors, he said the car coming third in the out of the out of the, the, the group is going to get scratched. So when Brock says you can do something, it's kind of you think, yeah, right. And uh, he was actually quite right. It took a little bit of courage to actually do it, but um, that was a, a a great insight into the, the to the legend of why he was just so uh, fanatical about being a perfectionist. Drove by the seat of his pants. Um, had an incredible sense of humour and. Uh, and, and helped guide me um, and gave me a lot of advice um, to actually take my career a bit further. We, you were talking earlier about this Renault series that you you ran in at Oran Park. <clears throat> there was another series that you were involved in too, the Classic Commodores. Want to tell us a bit about how that all came about? Yeah, 1987, um, the Oran Park management team wanted to have uh, a bit of an exclusive event. And what, what had happened at that time, the promoters, which was Mick Ronk from Benalla, uh, Clem Smith from Malala, um, and Tony Perich and Bob Jane, they were fighting with CAMS because CAMS wanted more money for events. And Perich's idea was, well, stuff CAMS. He said, we own the circuit, we control it. 
um, which is pretty true to the point. So he said, let's come up with a series. So they decided to get XVK Police Chaser uh, 308 um, Commodores, um, put CSA wheels on different brake package. Um, and I had a guy, um, Big Ed Stepanovich, who was a famous drag racer um, from down at Leppington. He decided to build a car and he wanted to get his cams licensed. He came out. And we spent the day with him and he and, and he was struggling. He really couldn't come to grips with going around corners compared to drag racing and didn't understand the importance of how he had to brake and heel and toe. And he said, look, Luffy, I don't think I can do this. Would you like to drive the car instead of me? You know what you're doing. So I got a free drive in the series and, um, and it was fantastic because we got to race all around the country. We did the last race, Surface Paradise, um, in those cars and um, Mal Rose, who became a a very good uh, mate of mine, both through truck racing and car racing in the Bathurst 12 hour. Um, we did some pretty amazing stuff with those Commodores. And uh, I can remember out in the back of Leppington one night, it was out with Ed Stepanovich running in a motor and he's driving it. And um car wasn't registered. He said, don't worry. He said, I know everyone. I said, Jim, we might have to. And we're doing warp factor up the back of the Northern Road. Back in 87 was country. And a blue light goes flashing past one way. With that, it does a U-turn chases up the road, pulls us over, the copper comes up to the door and Ed sticks his head out the window and he goes, g'day, so-and-so. And And the (laughs) copper said, seriously, you should know better, Ed. He said, get this thing off the road. I haven't seen anything and let us go. So it's um, sometimes you have lighthearted moments, but that Commodore series was good. I did um, very well in that whole series, managed to attract uh, a little bit of corporate interest to help pay some of the running costs. But um, that sort of um, also led into meeting Mal Rose, as I said, and then Mal, um, through the newspapers that uh, I was writing for at the time, we decided to do a Bathurst campaign and run Bathurst 12 hour in 1994. And we decided to do it differently with a XR6 Falcon, but we ran it on LPG gas. And that created like what we could have called the Chernobyl 500 because it, um, it didn't go over too well with competitors because everyone said, liquid petroleum gas if the thing explodes you're going to wipe out more than bathurst and we had to get every driver to sign um a disclaimer um so peter muir from bond roll bars and as you know peter's a very wily chap he's been around for a long time he was masterminding masterminding our trip to bathurst in 94 he went around the pits with his notepad he got everyone to sign the last person who had to sign was dick johnson and stephen johnson because they're in the same class in an xr6 but obviously running on petrol so Peter Muir goes to Dick Johnson and, you know, what Dick's like, you know, uh, useless as an ashtray on a motorbike, all those kind of comments. He, <laughs> he just laughed and he just said, um, <laughs> Luffy is driving an LPG. What's going to happen when he comes in for a pit stop? He'll have to drive into Bathurst to get a big Mac or something to fill up with gas and come back. I'll <laughs> gladly sign it. But we didn't tell him that we changed the fuel tank in four, in four seconds while he had fuel drums. They didn't have overhead fuel rigs. When we pulled in, we had like a quick release boot Guys jumped in, big saddle, cradle, lifted the thing out with an aerocrit fitting, new tank, bang, we just drove past the pits. Have a nice day, Dick. I do, re- I do remember another comment with that car as well, Luffy, was uh, who's going to change the beaded seat cover when they come into the pit stop as well? Yeah, because uh, yeah, we had the vacant uh, side on the roof as well. Yes, yes. No, that was uh, that was a good a good effort. After the couple of, couple of 12 hours, you did the two James Hardy's ones, obviously the one with Brock with the... The Peugeot four hundred five, and then the um, the uh, the gas powered EB Falcon. You then had an assault on the the big one on the the one thousand up there as well. 
with um, with Shembury Motorsport and an ex Perkins um, um, winning car. How did you, you know, in between 94 and 97, how did you sort of hang out? Was there other racing you did or a lower profile racing or was it building to that program? Well, that stage then my advanced driving academy, as we call it, was absolutely powering with, we were, we were doing so much interstate travel all around. So motor racing, again, had to take a little bit of a back seat. But again, um, I, I I got to know Neil Shembury. He'd been out there for some private testing and hanging around the racetrack. You got to bump into drivers all the time. And uh, and Shembury said, "Luffy, would you would you like to have a steer?" So um, as you said, 1997. I think for memory, they started 36 cars thereabouts. Um, you had privateers, and uh, we um, we actually did pretty well. We got up to sixth outright leading privateers and then um, I was in the last stint and we lost power steering. Now to drive one of those jiggers with so much caster and camber, every time you turn the steering wheel, it wants to rip out of your hand. So going down through the S's, I looked like a one-armed paper hanger from Beirut, you know, hands all around the wheel, grabbing this and knee under the steering wheel, trying to stop itself centering. And I, even I could feel through my gloves that I, I thought it was sweat, but I'd actually, my hands had blistered and they were bleeding inside as I fought the car. So we got knocked off with um, about four laps to go. Um, and we, But we came second and we finished ninth outright. So that was, that was a pretty big highlight because um, to go there against such great company, against the pro teams and all that, and we were really a, very much a, a backyard operation, but we drove consistently, we kept out of trouble, Apart from the power steering, but uh, yeah, that uh, that got the 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 juices extracted, which then led to the two twenty four hour races. And uh, if you think twelve hours is exciting around Bathurst, you want to try twenty four. So that happened with Scott Loadsman um, in two thousand and two, the very first twenty four hour. We went there with a little Holden Commodore, and people laughed at us and said, "Oh, little taxi again." But um, with uh, Terry Bosenjack, who's a fantastic driver and a race engineer. He engineered the Loadsman car and uh, my son Warren shared the car with us. And uh, we went up there and we we won our class by five laps and we finished ninth outright. And um, we drove to a pace which was to be consistent. Um, and we timed, we doing, we're doing three hour stints. And according to the roads traffic manager uh, or minister, I should say, from New South Wales government who we're working with about driver fatigue, I said, this drive of fatigue of stop, revive, survivor every two hours is a joke because we're doing three-hour stints. And he <laughs> said, didn't, didn't you get tired? And I just said, when your heart rate's at about 160 beats a minute, <laughs> three o'clock in the morning, and you've got a Porsche up your bum going down through the S's, there's no time to sleep, I can assure you. But they, they were great events. They were really good events. Then we went back in 20, in 2004, one-hour class again. Um, so, yeah, to say that, you know, twice winner of the Bathurst 24-hour on my resume, that's probably some of the proudest things, but um, I also think um, to be able to drive with my son, um, we uh, raced against each other at Bathurst in the Mirages. We were the first um, father and son to be on pole position side by side. He won, of course. Um, everyone always said, how'd you go? I said, the little mongrel beat me, but he's that good. <laughs> but um, it, He's it, probably it, lighter it, than you anyway. Oh, mate, I tell you what, you know, I should get sponsorship from Jenny Craig, I reckon. <laughs> they talk about power-to-weight ratio, every kilo you can save in a car. Um, but, you, you know, you're right, Gary, because um, it it really comes back to, I think, your mental capacity um, and your determination 
uh, to have drive because I've been very fortunate to bring people through motorsport. Mark Webber came through my academy in 94. Um, people just knew him then as a go-karter. Um, he and his father came up and saw me and it was quite interesting because um, he had great um, delusions of grandeur back then about racing in Formula One. And I said to him, how are you going to do it? He said, I've got no idea, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> and uh, I think that's a pretty determined attitude and he's proven everyone wrong and done an amazing an amazing thing um, to put Australia on the map. And uh, I'm very privileged at the moment to be working with a young go-karter or 15-year-old, um, Alex Ninovich, who is the next best thing. He's just um, absolutely outstanding when it comes to a report card. Uh, his report card is actually better than Weber's, better than Ricardo's, better than Oscar Piastri, and better than Vettel. So wow. uh, you start looking at 77% um, podium uh, ratio out of uh, 484 races, and he's only 15. He started at eight. So uh, you have to look <laughs> and say think, the name again, uh, Luffy. What was the name again? Yeah, his name's Alex Ninovich, and yep. um, he's um, he went over to the bend um, and did a test in an S5000. Um, and I, he'd only driven a manual car a week before, even though it's paddle shift. And he went over there, and on lap three, he's pulling 265 in six gear down the straight, and he was second fastest on the whole day. And um, he's just come back from road and cars in New Zealand where he's driven an F3 uh, race car there. Uh, broke the lap record, has reset the lap record on eight consecutive laps. Um, he's just an absolute freak of nature. So keep the name Alex Ninovich close to you, uh, your listeners because uh, this kid is really, he's got the goods and he's such a nice person. Doesn't trip over his ego. He hasn't got one. He just knows exactly what he has to do. Um, and that's the key to being successful. Know your own abilities. Can we just jump back to your actual driving career? Because your sports sedan is 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 drilled into the the back of my mind. But certainly for quite a few years in the early two thousands, you wheeled a Honda Integra in the Australian Production Car Championship for some time. There, you've you've jumped around just about all the the Australian brands, Australian manufactured car brands, and and worked your way through a couple of the Japanese cars as well. What was it? Was it the rule set that led you to the uh, Integra Type R in that in that type of racing at the time? No, look, again, the um, the owner of the car was a bloke called Len Cave, who I've known for a long time, introduced Len to motorsport, got his CAMS licence, and, 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 and Len was moving along a bit and a very busy businessman, and he had the car, and he just said, look, Luffy, if you can cover the running costs, um, you can drive it in the Australian Production Car Championship. So um, I managed to get onto Laminex Industries, who we've done a lot of work with, with corporate driver training, put a proposal in front of them and next minute we've got um, the car branded in one of their opposition brands, which is Formica. It's just a similar thing under the Laminex household. And we contested the um, the production car championship. And in that uh, championship, there was a, um, a young bloke having his first steer called Chris Alajarjan. And he was the youngest ever Australian production car champion. And I remember being at Adelaide and we're going through the twisty bits and he was in a BMW and I looked in the rearview mirror and I thought, my God, there's this guy. I thought it looked like Evil Knievel on two wheels, bouncing off everything except the wall. And his father came up to me, um, Jack, and uh, he just said, uh, Ian, you must help my son before he kills himself. <laughs> so I did some uh, private work with young Chris. And then the year later, we contested the production car championship, me again in the Formica 
Honda Integra Type R, and he was driving a Subaru, different class. And uh, he won the Australian Championship, and I won won the class. So that made us both Australian champions. But he always reminded me, he said, well, hang on, you might be their master, but I'm the apprentice, but I'm the outright winner. But, you might, um, you might uh, want to talk about the plane trip back from after you won that class championship too. That was an amusing little incident um, about the trophy on the plane. Oh, look, I mean, you know, the, uh, you, um, we, we had to carry the, you know, I had to carry the trophy and, and, and we, we wanted to put it in a special seat. We didn't want to put an overhead locker. And, and, and when you're dealing with air hostesses and management and protocol, um, they, we've come up the gangway and we're all pretty happy and we might've had a few sherbets to celebrate and, and, We've carried the trophy on, and then then the whole plane they they got amongst the whole thing, and somehow I think the pilot got worded up about it, and then he got on the two way and announced we've got a special guest on board. We've got the an Australian <laughs> production car champion, Ian Luff. You put your hands together and make him welcome. And so yeah, so you become famous overnight. But I think Gary O'Brien had something to do with no, that. No, 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 no. I heard about it. I was no, no, plane. Yeah, well, I can I can remember reading a write up with you called the Luff stuff in Auto Action. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, but but look, all of those things aside, that again, what I'm coming back to is I've I've always said to uh, everyone that I've been tutoring that that have, have gone on, you've entered motorsport for one word, which is F U N fun. When the fun goes out of it, and tragically, this is what's happening as we see in mainstream motor racing as opposed to motorsport. That it's a business, and I get that, and it's all about uh, it's all about win win win. And when the fun goes out of it, unfortunately, that can take the motivation out of certain people. And to survive in this rat race, you've really got to have uh, a well-disciplined mindset um, and act that way and be professional. But sadly, the way that the uh, motorsport is going, uh, I, I get concerned because I don't see too many young kids wanting to take up motorsport. Um, we don't see the inquiry these days. People saying, "I want to get a competition license. I want to follow in Dad's footsteps." It's just, um, it's diminishing. So unless Motorsport Australia put their skates on and start to do and have uh, scholarships and encouragement for young people out of karting, there is definitely a very bad bridge that does not exist between karting and mainstream motorsport. They really need to tidy that up if they want to have future competitors long after the. Craig Lowndes, the Ingalls, the Luffs disappear from this world. You need to have new blood, and that needs to come from karting. Is it? Do you think that camps are being progressive, though, considering how they used to be a long time ago? I think there's moves in the right direction, although I agree with you, they have a long way to go. But is there been some movement, you think, in the right in going the right way? Look, I, I think with what they're trying to do with trying to attract officials because that's also another area um, of, of concern that, you know, without officials, you don't have a sport. So the whole sport needs to be under an umbrella and they need to look at every element because yes, you can have officials, you can have venues, but without competitors, and that's one of the big things, uh, motorsport needs competitors and they need to be encouraged to say motorsport is where you start. Yes, you might end up in motor racing if you're very fortunate, like Proprietary Limited, the big business end of town, but that costs a lot of money because um, without the money, um, the, the sport as we know, it can't survive. So you really need to have corporate sponsorship, corporate engagements, 
and companies willing to support young up-and-coming people to say, oh, I'll back that, um, that horse at this stage here because who knows, it could end up being a yeah, Melbourne Cup winner. Mm. And, and I just want to go back on to your driving again. I wanted to mention uh, the Porsche with Chris Holmes, where you uh, raced a couple of meetings with him. We did Adelaide. Actually, he was the star of the show with uh, the tyre choice that you had for the TV race on Channel 9 on the Saturday afternoon at Grand Prix. Remember that? Yeah, look, I mean, that, uh, again, Holmes, he, he through my sports and in efforts, he's a, a great believer in those weapon cars of just how fast they are. And it's when he saw me break the 10-year lap record at Oran Park in 1994 that Chris Clearahan uh, had done, um, we'd had conversations and he said, look, I've got two cars, slope nose cars. And he said, um, how'd you like to come and drive one of my cars? So I got to drive that. And and Holmes and I, we, we've become lifelong buddies and, and he's a fabulous guy. His um, little slope nose, naturally aspirated car, it handled well. It did everything right. It just lacked a little bit of horsepower, but maybe with um, a little bit of aggressive driving for me, um, pushing things to the limit. Because with Porsches, as you know, with them being rear engine and the old school cars, not like your new GT3s, you've got swing axles. So they're like a Volkswagen Beetle. Lift <laughs> off the gas pedal and the ass wants to overtake you. <laughs> so um, if you look in the rear view mirror and say, shit, there's someone overtake me, it's me. Um, but um, but at Adelaide Raceway, I, I was very fortunate to um, beat Jeff Morgan, who I introduced, as I said before, to to Porsche racing and so forth and got on the podium. And uh, on the Tuesday, I was at the uh, at the airport and uh, and the late Ayrton Senna, he, um, he, he rocked up there with his girlfriend. He's sitting over there and... Uh, and I saw him and I walked across and I had, all I had was a big poster, which was called the Professor's Finale, which was Elaine Frost. Oh. <laughs> it was at Stag Corner and it was Senna leading, um, leading, leading, oh no, sorry, Senna behind Frost and it was called the Professor's Finale. So I've gone up to Senna and I said, oh, excuse me, Mr. Senna, could I please get your autograph? And I said, look, I do apologise. And he goes, oh, it's okay. So he scribbled it away and he said, did you enjoy the Grand Prix? And I said, yeah. And told him I was racing in a, in a support class. He said, which one? I said, uh, in the Porsches. He said, how did you go? And I said, uh, oh, I finished third. He said, oh, you were driving the blue one. So um, wow. yeah, he he said, mate, they're real <laughs> race cars. And I said, with due respect, Mr. Senna, I think the car you're driving is the real deal because I couldn't believe how amazing. <laughs> but but that goes to show you that um, those cars needed a lot of respect um, and, and to drive it at the limit, particularly at Eastern Creek when you're, when you've got uh, rear end damage and handling and I knew I couldn't win the race. So um, I decided to invent drifting at Eastern Creek back then in the Porsche and Channel 9 couldn't take the camera off, but uh, hand one hand out the window waving and sideways drift through turn one, <laughs> the officials called me up and wanted to please explain. So I don't think they know much about entertainment. Luffy, uh, a little bit of change of tack here. You've, you've mentioned a number of times here and there that you've, You've helped drivers, big names, small names, little known names that may have disappeared. Is there, I, I guess, three main dot points or one main dot point about racing a car that you must adhere to? Is there something that every driver must learn how to do and do it in the best possible way that their skill lets them to? The, the number one thing is you have to have mechanical sympathy and with being a fully qualified mechanical engineer that I did my time with Repco, that makes you understand that 
you know, machinery. It's called the Perkins principle, preparation, preparation, preparation. If you've got good equipment, you have to know how to look after it. So you've got to have an ear, you've got to have a feel. You, 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 it's just a total thing of understanding if there's a vibration in the car, is it the tail shaft, is it a drive shaft, um, is it a rotor? And understanding that mechanical sympathy, it might mean um, backing off the pace. And particularly in events like the 24-hour Enduros or the 12-hour, you cannot drive a production-based car absolutely flat out. You're still driving it quick, but you've got to know where to go quick and when to ease out of it a little bit to also... Uh, look at fuel consumption uh, and wear and tear. So I think that's the sec the first part. The second part is what goes on between your ears, your own thought process. A thinking driver is a surviving driver, and that's on the road or the driver, if, if, on the racetrack. If you're driving down the highway with your brains in neutral, or as I say, the automatic in D for dream, you're not a cognitive driver. On the racetrack, you have to be totally aware of your surroundings, your peripherals, What's happening, that comes back to learning racecraft about where you can push it, where you can anticipate, where you can, uh, let's say, be a bit cheeky uh, with someone, intimidate them, because there's a lot of intimidation goes on. And I suppose, thirdly, your own level of fitness, because um, to to be able to race, you've got to be not only, you know, sort of emotionally fit, you've got to know, you know, all about sort of how the human body with dehydration, all of those elements there. So, it's really mechanical sympathy, understanding, um, understanding the opposition, how to outthink, how to outsmart, how to outdrive, um, and also looking after your own health, mental health, as well as, as physical health. I think it was you that um, mentioned to me years ago about, I can't remember who the driver was, about someone who didn't look forward, didn't look through the corner when they're racing. They were just concentrating what's on, basically what's at the front of the car. And you said that's important that you must look forward, look through the corner, look what's on the exit if you can see the exit. Well, blind people can't drive motor cars. I'm not having a go at, at people that have got a sight impairment, but we're only as good as our eyesight. It's like headlights on a car. They've got to be clean, aligned in the correct thing for nighttime so you can see. If you turn your headlights off at nighttime, you can't see. That applies to humans. And what we find with with drivers, we have what we call primary sight, which is the road in front, and secondary sight, a bit like low beam and high beam. 99% of drivers all look in their primary sight. They're looking at the end of the bonnet. Well, let, let me tell you, at speed, that bit of road in front is already in your rear view mirror. It's happened. You can't do anything about uh, what's happened. You can only look forward, and you're right. Um, when you've got a roll cage inside the A-pillar window net, you really have to be able to turn your head. And the other thing is with helmets, they also restrict your peripheral vision. So it, it comes back to eyes, hands and feet, look, point and squeeze. Um, and and just just that in itself, that um, when, you, when you're dealing with people, and one of the, the crazy stories, I've been very privileged to work with 11 Australian world champions. Um, I've mentioned Sir Jack Brabham, Alan Jones, 1984 Middle One world champion. Um, but I dealt with Kostya Zoo, the boxer. Had him out at uh, Oran Park, and this was through Chris Alajarjan and his father. Had him in a Subaru um, race car on the North Circuit. Now, as a boxer, his eyes are very important to him, but he only works from very close range. Put him in the car, never worn a helmet before. Took up out of the pits. We get to the first corner. I'm in the passenger seat. And I told him about eyes, hands and feet. He looked straight ahead. We were off in the paddock out with Perridge's Jersey cows. And there's dust and shit and crap going everywhere. Bang, crash the Subaru. And he looks at me. He goes, hey, Luffy, the car go off to right. 
And I said, where were you looking, you dickhead? And he said, straight ahead. I said, well, guess what? Where did we go? So at the end of the day, we became really good mates. And he says, oh, Luffy, you're very good coach. He said, it's all with the eyes. I must turn my head. So, yeah, it's right. Blind people can't drive cars. And, and that's the key to anything. Open your eyes. Open your mind. Have a clear mindset and a positive mindset. Um, and as I said before, this um, young Alex Ninovich, the Carter, he's the real deal. And if you want a name to, to sort of etch into the minds of, the, of your listeners, just think of this young bloke because you're going to hear big things coming from him, not only now, but in the very, very near future. Well, this podcast's all about grassroots, so we probably need to get to speak to him in the next few weeks before he starts to uh, explore uh, the world of motorsport. Luffy, it's at this point just about uh, at, at our podcast, I like to pose two questions to our guests. First of all, the opposition that you least like to race against, let's call it your nemesis, and the one that you most like to race against? Wow. The, um, wow, gee whiz. That's, um, that's a very delicate question. I think probably <laughs> back, I think um, when you go back to the Commodore Classic days, 1987, all the one make V8s, um, X-Cop cars, virtually the same, uh, running around. I There, there was... Kent Yulden, which, you know, he he and Brett Yulden. Um, Kent worked for the Ford Motor Company. He was an engineer. And if you've got you know anything about an engineer, they usually like to use a slide roll and a micrometer. And they know how to prepare something. And they had two purple Commodores. And they were like a bloody hemorrhoid. They are always stuck to your ass. It was like, um, uh, or punting you. Um, and then Barry Jones... Who was driving? He was a he used to race minis. He was a very talented driver. Um, I remember he crashed in the back of me at Oran Park, and he came up to me in the pits later, and he said, "Luffy, Luffy, the brakes, the brakes." He said, "I'm sorry." And then at Surface Paradise six months later, um, I was in the pits, and Barry comes running up to someone else, and he's gone, "Hey, so and so, I'm sorry, the brakes, the brakes." And said, "You bullshit artist, you use that story on me too." So they're, they're probably two people that really, really stand out. Um, but in, in Porsche racing, Wayne Park, for when I was racing, uh, he was he was gold stature. He was the Peter Harburg car he had was, um, everyone said it was a cheater. Whether it was, I don't know, but it, he always won. But he's a very good driver. Um, and uh, he raced fair and square, but also a bloke from Melbourne called Rex Broadbent. Yep. He's been around Porsches. Rex, Rex had every excuse for everything that went, it went wrong. But when he went right, he was a very competitive driver and I have a lot of respect for him. We raced side by side at Adelaide on a wet track. That was track. the race I was referring to earlier. He, he and Jeff and yourself, they they were the three that were battling it out in the wet. I think yes. that was the Udelux slant nose Porsche as well, wasn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, but what what Gary just touched on, we 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 raced. Um, I was, I think I was more sideways than anyone because of the tyre choice that we'd done. But um, but Rex was fair, um, but but tough, really. He, he You know, you leave him a, a millimetre and he, he he would turn it into a, you know, a football field. So, he, still, he still is. He still does it the same way. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you, you can't, you, you know, you can't take the animal out of the, out of the, out of the showroom, can you? The other, the other question is your, and I'm talking in a motorsport, in a racing sense here, your favourite moment, the one where you go, yep, 
that's the one I hang my hat on. That's the funnest time racing ever. Yeah, it was Oran Park. I was in the uh, in the the big Commodore Sports sedan, and as I said, um, I had managed to beat the lap record that Chris Clearahan had in the for ten years in the K and A Alfetta. Everyone said it can't be done, can't be done. We were the first people, uh, my engineer and I, to play with barge boards under the car to get the air from under the car. We're only on ten inch rims, as people know. Then. Um, we didn't have a real 600 horsepower. We had 583. We had Webers. We had a four-speed uh, Super T10 gearbox. But we played with Aero. We're the first people. So breaking the 10-year lap record, which I only held for three months, and Greg Crick from Tasmania said, well, if Luffy can do it, I can do it in my Honda Prettier. <laughs> and then after that, Des Wall came along and the Super said, well, if Cricky can do it. Um, but the, the biggest moment was on that meeting. I'd won everything. I'd won Heat 1, Heat 2, Heat 3. And in heat four, they said, well, we'll start you off the back, Luffy, because we can, um, <laughs> and see if you can go four from four. And uh, I was so pumped. I uh, I came around and oh, I don't know when it was, a few laps from home, crossed the start, finished line, went past a guy called Graham Smith in the turbo Fiat, was a quick car. And uh, I was so pumped. I did everything wrong as I crossed the line. I flat changed from third to fourth and got neutral. So we we turned the Commodore into a grenade because it just uh, spat the crank out the bottom at uh, oh. seven and a half thousand revs, disintegrated the block, and the car exploded in flames. It was the biggest fireball, the biggest moment of my life, and all that. The fans went burko. I signed more autographs that night, and they said you should get sponsorship from Barbecues Galore. <laughs> well, that's a that's a good moment. That is definitely uh, a memorable moment. Memorable One of the moment. Uh, the moments you probably don't want to remember is that Ute race at uh, Adelaide. Not your fault, oh, mate. That 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 was um. You can hear Susie laughing in the background. It's um. The yeah. We, look, I I started down the front again. We had four mica backing because we'd gone from the Integra. We were into the Falcon Ute, and it was um. It was two thousand and four because Warren was driving for Dick Johnson in the Shell Helix Falcon with uh, with Stephen, and he was there. Um, took off. I was at the front somewhere. Um, James Moffat was behind me. And I won't mention the other driver's name, but he started, let's say, halfway down the side and premeditated. He was going to shortcut the centre chicane, do a big airborne and land and be virtually up the front. Well, sometimes plans like that don't go to plan. And the next minute, I've just been hit. Like, I just remember this incredible bang. And, and then out of the left-hand window, I see the word Adelaide coming towards me which was the inside of the centre chicane and hit the tyres and it acted like a trampoline and it fired the car back into the track, did a complete 180 and landed. Moffat went under the back of me because the trend window sticker from his bonnet was jammed on the diff housing. There's bang, crash, there's, the world just ended. It was like the worst thing, red flag, there's wreck mutes everywhere. And you, when these things happen, uh, the, your clear thinking is not clear you've got what's called the shithead syndrome because, you know, you touch yourself, I think I'm alive, I'm okay. And the whole side of the car is destroyed. So I've just kicked the door open and got out and you're not supposed to leave the scene of the accident, but I'm not thinking close. I've just wandered off, disappeared back to the transporter, took my driving suit off um, and then disappeared over to turn turn nine at the back or turn eight, whatever it is at the back. With us. And I'm sitting in the grandstand. Well, the officials are running around. They've lost one ear left, they can't find him. So there's a bulletin gone out and I must have looked like I've been smoking the crack pipe or something because I'm sitting there with this dazed look. I've just been in the biggest crash of my life. 
And all of a sudden I hear this voice scream out, there he is. And there's people pointed up and it's ambulance people. They've raced across, they've grabbed me, um, put me on a stretcher, neck brace, carted me off to the hospital in the in the circuit. I'm laying there, it's freezing cold and you're shaking and, and God knows what. And, um, and I can remember there, they gave me this massive tablet to evidently calm the pulse down and it, it's known to create wind. And uh, and I'm pretty I'm pretty good in that department anyway. But they gave me a booster shot, and I was I was like a, a football on steroids. And I'm sitting back here thinking, "Geez, hang on, what's going on here?" So all of a sudden, as the jets flew over for the introduction of the the of the next race, whatever they come over, yeah. I just think, well, that's a great diversion to let it go. No one's going to hear me at least. But the um, let's say it was fairly pungent, and it said, "I know how to clear an operating theatre." <laughs> stop the race and stop the operating theatre. So you, you can laugh, but 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 out of that accident, um, uh, Mick Zakanovic, uh, which is um, uh, Zakanovic's young son's Marcus, father, he yeah. um, he came and had a look, and they said, "Look, everyone's saying the car's a write-off." And there's a saying in motorsport: "You bend it, you mend it," which is your money, yeah. and it was a loan vehicle. So um, Zakanovic took the car, and to his credit, he took it back to Melbourne. Did a complete cut and shut and rebodied it and fixed it and didn't charge me for it. So to, to mix a canovic, if you're out there listening, mate, you're a dead set gentleman and you kept me on the racetrack and you kept our sponsors very, very happy. And that's what makes motorsporting so great that and, and Luffy, Mick yep. does listen to the podcast because we've had Marcus on as a guest and uh Mick does regularly listen. So big g'day to Mick as well. Yeah, well, hey, he's Mick. a hell of a nice bloke. And as I said, when I said what do I owe you, he said, mate. Consider it a favour. He said, anyone, anyone that uh, can help my son in motorsport and you've done that, he said, um, you're a friend oh. of ours, you're a friend of our family. So that's, as I said before, that's what motorsport's about. It's the little things that happen off track that are never seen sometimes and never reported. And and that's what's been an absolute privilege to be involved for um, nearly 50 years. Well, I think that's a great way to uh, end this podcast uh, with Ian Luff. been fantastic having this conversation tonight or today. And um, we now know that you're um, still actively involved in motivation and and all that sort of stuff and continue to do so. We'll live life in the fast lane and uh, put a smile on your face and that's what makes a big difference. But uh, absolute privilege and thanks for being part of your podcast, guys. Fantastic. Thank you, Thank you very much, Ian Luff. Fantastic to have the Australian motorsporting icon there, Ian Luff. And, uh, yeah, I'm sure he uh, held back a couple of times there, Gaz, just with some of the stories there and uh, a little bit of the tidbits we had off air. But uh, certainly great to have him on our podcast. Let's just update those websites, napaparts.com.au forward slash academy or napa.co.nz. Academy is where you can... Catch it all. Of course, the grand annual Sprint Car Classic at the Premier Speedway in Warnable is coming up this weekend. There's a little bit of a precursor event down at uh, at Avalon um, this week uh, on Wednesday night. But uh, we're certainly looking forward to seeing James McFadden driving the Hodges Motorsport outfit. And, of course, Brad Sweet, four times consecutive and reigning World of Outlaws champion, driving for the Perth-based Lanigran Motorsport. Importantly, they're the both Napa Auto Parts-sponsored um, cars out there. So you recognise that with the bright blue and the bright yellow 
all over those two cars. So we're looking forward to seeing how our two Napa entries in the grand annual sprint car racing at Warnable go this weekend. Gaz, that's going to be a big one at Warnable, isn't it? Yeah, and just to, again on uh, Luffy, it's great to have him on. Uh, you can tell why he's so good at what he does. You can certainly uh, got the gift of the gab there as far as uh, um, motivating and all that stuff. And like some of the stuff that he came out with is so so simple and basic, really. But makes sense, doesn't do it? it. Yeah, makes it sense. Does. Well, as I mentioned earlier, there wasn't much in the way of motorsport happening in Australia because we're in the middle of our summer and it's the off season. Now that school's back, I suppose things will start to rev up a little bit. In the meantime, the Super Sprint Motorsport New Zealand Championships uh, happened over the last two weekends at Highlands in uh, the weekend before last and then at Tiratonga, um, which is the southernmost racing circuit in the world. But um, from our perspective, uh, it's great to see that in the Castrol Toyota Formula Regional Oceanic Championships, that's a mouthful, isn't it? That isn't it? Ryder, Ryder Quinn and Tom McClellan, two Aussies that were competing, Ryder got a, a seventh, a third and a fourth in the three races. Um, Tom McClellan got a, an 11th, a 10th and a ninth, so he's on the improve. That's one thing. Also, at that race meeting, the Toyota 86 Championships, the opening round, uh, took place, and we had an Aussie competing there, Ryland Gray, son of Jeremy Gray, who we see in TCM and other categories here in Australia. He had a ninth in the first race, was leading the second, got turned around, finished ninth again, and then seventh in the third race. And in the GTs, making his comeback after that shocking accident up at Townsville last year, Tony Quinn, teamed up with Grant Aiken in the uh, three races, one hour duration for the first two and two hours and for the last one, uh, 11th, a 10th and a third, which is a pretty good effort. Then, of course, they went to Teratonga last weekend and in uh, the, the Oceanic Championships, again, Ryder Quinn finished with um, a seventh and followed it up with a third and and. Uh, and the last race was another seventh. Interesting circuit. I don't know if you said it. it's sort of reminiscent of a Wakefield Park, but being flat. It's just a bit, it's got some faster corners on it. So, um, and McClellan, unfortunately, uh, didn't fare so well. He actually got a drive through penalty in the second race for an incident coming out of the last corner, which caused uh, a rival to be spun around. And in the Toyota 86s, uh, Ryland Gray finished with a third and eighth. And a fourth, which is a pretty good effort for him. He's actually leading the, one of the races there, but uh, because it was wet, they went out on wets and the tyre wear was a little bit higher than what he anticipated. Racing at that meeting as well was uh, Justin Allen, and Justin Allen is a Napa Auto Parts-sponsored uh, Toyota. He finished with a, a sixth, a second, and another second at uh, Teratonga, and the weekend before that he had some reasonably good results as well. So that's about a wrap this weekend. They're off to Mansfield on the North Island. So it might be a little bit warmer up there. They had good weather down at Highland, nice and warm. But uh, last weekend there was rain and 15 degrees or something, typical New Zealand type weather. Well, Gaz, yeah, entries still continue to roll in for round one of the Victorian State Circuit Racing Championships, which uh, will be live streamed. Triple Eight Home Loans announced as the um series sponsored there as well so looking forward to that and of course the uh 
the Liquamoli Bathurst 12 hour is uh, right on our doorstep. Gaz, enjoy a uh, a lovely lamb lunch on Australia Day, and and uh, you too, Daz. And uh, and uh, see if you can walk off the boat after a great day and get a ride home in the new Bentley. <laughs> All right. Well, well, until next time, it's good night from me and good day from me and whoever else. From Daz and Gaz, that's me and him. We'll catch you at uh, episode 18. Thank you. You've just listened to another Network Car production. 